0: Well, as Anthony
1: said, my name is Andy Bradshaw, and if any of you are visiting, we you know that our uh, normal pastor will be back next week. You do not have to listen to me week after week. This is my fourth time preaching at Cornerstone, and uh, you know I'm excited to do that, but still, obviously, very nervous. So, let's enter into prayer before we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would indeed speak through me. I pray that the preparation that was put in was the words that you wanted this people, this congregation to hear tonight. Lord, I pray that you would just be honored and glorified in the preaching of the word as I know you were in the in the worship, in the prayers, and in the reading of the scripture. Lord, just bless this time. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the video that was shown, I didn't see that before tonight, so that kind of away the first couple of paragraphs. I want to make sure we had some context, but I'll breeze through that anyway. As you know, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it comes right after Genesis. When Genesis ends, we see Joseph and his brothers settling in Egypt. And he has 11 brothers, 12 of them all together, and they become the tribes of Israel. Israel is the name that their father was given by God, their father Jacob. And so we see in chapter 1 of Exodus that... The Pharaoh was growing concerned because the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were growing fairly numerous in number. He thought, we've got to do something. This is a new Pharaoh, not the one that Joseph had found favor with so many years before. So Pharaoh orders all of the Hebrew babies killed, all of the boys, in order to keep their population down. And Jonathan preached last week on chapter 2, at least the first part of it, where you see Moses born, laid in the Nile in a basket, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And chapter 2 also has a few other things. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's court and he comes out and he sees an Israelite being mistreated, an Israelite slave. And he kind of snaps and he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Moses was about 40 when he did this. So just to give you some context, Moses spent 40 years pretty much in Pharaoh's court. So he is a little upset about what he did, obviously. He knows that Pharaoh now knows what he did, word has gotten out, so he flees Egypt. He goes to Midian. When he gets there, he finds seven daughters trying to water their flock. They get driven away, often by people, but he drives those people away and helps them water their flock, to which Jethro, their father, is very impressed, so he has them invite him back. He ends up marrying Zipporah, which is one of Jethro's daughters. So chapter 2 spans about 80 years. Because as we start chapter 3, when Moses encounters the burning bush, he is 80 years old. And we know that both from Exodus and from the book of Acts. They tell us that. So chapter 2 covers 80 years. Chapters 3 through about 17 or 18 is going to cover probably about less than a year. So Exodus is going to slow way down and really dive into some detail. One of the interesting things about Moses' life that I don't want to miss either that uh, maybe some people have, have missed. The Bible's full of these different kind of symbols. Moses, his life was broken into three 40-year parts. His first 40 years in Pharaoh's court, his second 40 years in Midian, and his final 40 years leading the Israelite people out of Egypt and to the Promised Land, which, don't want to ruin the story, but he never makes it there. So, Exodus chapter 3, it was a really challenging text that Jonathan dumped on me because there are at least six, seven, eight exegetical sermons that could be preached out of Exodus chapter 3. If you go looking for sermons, you'll find all kinds of topics that are covered, and properly so, by Exodus 3. It's a huge task. It's one of the most famous passages in the Torah, which is the first five books, and it has been preached on a lot. So, what am I going to do? Well, we're trying to go through Exodus in an 18-week series. So, it's really more of an overview. And whenever I'm looking at the Old Testament, there's a couple of things I want to do. And I found a quote. I don't know if you can read that when I converted the slides to the software here. looks like it got a little small. Sorry about that. I'll read it. God reveals his nature and his purpose through his word. To ignore the Old Testament is like making a new friend. And never asking about his past. God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And studying the Old Testament allows us to know him better. And more fully understand our place in his plan. And that's from uh, Got Questions Ministries, which is a pretty good resource uh, online. If you're, They cover a lot of common questions. So really, that's my goal tonight. My goal tonight is to do those two things. To see what we can learn about God's nature his character, from the Old Testament passage, and see what we can learn about our place in his plan. So if nothing else, I hope that those two things are communicated. I think those are the most important things to pull. So when I was a kid growing up, there's a few people here tonight that met my stepfather, not too many of you. He worked at Raytheon for a long, long time, and every year they had an art show. And he would always put a painting in the art show Every year, he never won, as you can probably see. But every year, his paintings depicted some scene from the Bible. Maybe incorrectly, but it was his way of providing a witness in a secular environment, people asking questions, people knowing he was a Christian. So when somebody asked me to picture God, as sad as it is, and I know it's pretty small up there, I picture a guy sitting on a throne in a white robe with no face, because it was on my living room wall my entire life. I can't help it so if I ask you guys to imagine what God looks like what do you think about some people say God is light and this is what they picture perhaps some people think about the old classical paintings of God maybe something like that this is what you find on the Jehovah's Witness website this is their picture of God maybe some people are into movies Whatever God looks like, we all have our own thoughts. I don't think many people spend a lot of time thinking about what God actually physically looks like. Maybe some do. But everybody has their own opinions of what God is like. And so that's why it's so important to work through the Old Testament and learn about the character of God. Because the truth is, we all have those thoughts. There are so many different people and so many different churches out there that create their own God. And it really is a dangerous thing. I'm sure you've heard people say, as one of my coworkers used to tell me every time I'd talk with him about this, he'd say, Andy, I'm a good person. And I think in the end, if my good deeds outweigh my bad, you know, the old balance scale, that God's going to let me into heaven because God is loving and God is just. So he has to. That would be the loving and just thing to do. Well, my friend Mark, I think, is creating his own image of God that doesn't match the image that we see in Scripture. Have you heard people say, or have you said yourself, I just don't think God would do that. Or, I don't really like the Old Testament God. I really like to focus much more on Jesus. Or, you know, all those wars that happened in the Old Testament, why why would God do that? That's not fair. I I don't think we should really look at those. Or, God didn't really mean all those things he said about sexual purity, did he? People try to define God in their own way. And it's kind of dangerous. One of the things we want to start with today that we can look in the passage and see is that God is superior to us. Hopefully, that's what's up there. Yes. So, if we look at the slides, we see that God, I'm sorry, at the verses, God says, Do not come any closer. He warns Moses, Do not come any closer. Just like the fire in the bush, fire is alluring. I think a lot of people are drawn to fire, but you can only get so close before you get burned you know i think god used that symbolism for a reason moses was drawn to this burning bush He was like whoa what is this what's going on but then god didn't say hey, don't get any closer and then he says to him take off your sandals you're on holy ground i think we all probably have heard holy defined as being set apart or different god is not like us he is above us he is superior to us god says take off your sandals He is distinctive. He is righteous. He tells Moses that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face. So up until this point, Moses sees this burning bush. He goes over to check it out. Now he's got a talking burning bush. He may not know who it is. Now he does. I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses hides his face. Funny reaction? I mean, I don't think so. I think that's probably the right reaction. I think it's probably what we would do. As a matter of fact, later on in Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, Moses asks God to see his face. And God says, you can't see my face. If you looked at it, you would die. So, you know, he acts appropriately. He covers his face. Matter of fact, if you look in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, it talks about the seraphim, their 6th wing six-winged creatures in God's presence. With two of the wings they fly, two of the wings they cover their feet, and with two of them they cover their face. And I'm thinking that even these angelic beings need to cover their face because if they look directly at God, they might not survive. So I want to catch the point that God is not our buddy, he's not our friend, He is superior to us. He is to be approached with reverence and awe. There's a healthy fear and respect that goes along with approaching God that we don't want to miss by focusing too much on his grace and his love. God is both, don't get me wrong, but we don't want to eschew one in favor of the other. He is both at the same time. So what else can we learn about God's character besides the fact that he is superior to us? Well, we can learn from these passages, these verses, that God is with us. In verse 7, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out, and I am concerned about their suffering. So we see that God hears what's going on. He sees what's going on, and he has concern about what's going on. He's not above us in the sense that he doesn't care enough to get involved, and that's an important point. And I don't think it's until you really understand that God is superior to us, that the fact he comes to be with us is really that amazing, that cool, because he doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need the aggravation of dealing with people. And if you work through all of Exodus with us, you'll see what a tough people God's people are. They don't treat him well, regardless of what he does, the signs and wonders he shows them. So God has seen, he has heard, and he is concerned. Going on to verse 8, it says, I have come down to rescue them and to bring them into a A good land, a spacious land. So God not just sees and hears and is concerned, but he takes action. He's come down to rescue them. He's come down to bring them to a better place. I want to put this into maybe more common vernacular. God sees, God hears, God cares. God meets us where we are, and God wants to give good gifts. Honestly, each one of those five points could be another sermon all on its own. There's verses throughout Scripture that back up the fact that God is watching, that God hears things, that God is concerned about people, um, that God has come down, we'll touch on that later, and that God wants to give good gifts to his children. There's just no end, really, to the depth of Exodus 3. I'm really only going to touch the surface. And the final thing I think we can learn about God, besides God is superior, God is with us, God is. And that's not, that's not a mistake, it ends right there, God is. In verse 14 he says, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Moses asked God his name, he says, what am I going to tell them? Who am I going to tell them sent me? He says, I am who I am. This is what, or what, you, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This statement really is antithetical to our logic. We don't stop there. We don't say, I am. God is. People are waiting for the rest of the sentence. But for God, that really is the end of the sentence. He's not defined by external things. He's a self-defining reality. It's an amazing thing that can blow your mind as you try to think about it. A better, maybe more literal translation is, I be who I be. Not very good English, but I be who I be. And when you look at the grammar, too, the grammar is kind of devoid of tense and conjugation. It's past tense, it's present tense, it's future tense all at once. So, it could easily just say, I have been who I have been, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. Now, when we give those answers, they're they're cop-out answers. I mean, right, the most famous person... Not in my notes, but makes me think of Bill Belichick. It is what it is. It's not an answer. It means nothing. You know, I am who I am. It means nothing when we say it. But for God, it means everything. He's basically saying to Moses, if you want proof that I am who I, that I, who I am, that I'm God, the proof is in the Exodus. The proof is in the fact that this is going to work. That's what God says. I have been who I've been. Check my track record. That's what God says. Look at my track record. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done already. Look at what I'm doing now. And trust me with your future. In verse 12, God says this to Moses. This will be the sign to you that is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses ends up right back in the same place where he sees the burning bush. Worshiping God after the Israelites are brought out of captivity. God says, You want proof? The proof is when it's done. That's what God says. When people ask us about ourselves, what do we say? We might say, I am a student. I am a mother. I'm a cancer survivor. I'm a soccer player. I'm an artist. I'm a Democrat. I mean, there's all kinds of things people say to define themselves. God just stops at, I am. And the problem with what I talked about before with defining your own reality of God with my friend Mark or other people who try to just pick and choose what parts of God they want to ascribe to him is that it doesn't change who God is. It's, it's, it's as silly as us thinking that anything else we can see is different than it is because facts aren't changed by our opinions and God is not changed by what people think of him. The great thing about that, oops, don't need to go ahead to that yet. The great thing about that is that God, then we can trust him to do anything, right? Because God is not constrained by anything or any person. He can't be convinced to do something or not do something because of any person. And we know that he's going to carry out his promises because he's constrained by one thing. He's constrained by his own character. He cannot lie, so if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Again, you could certainly spend at least a sermon, if not a sermon series, on unpacking God's name, I Am, which in most of your Bibles is going to appear as Lord in capital letters because Yahweh, the name I Am, was so revered by the Jewish people they got out of the habit of saying it, they got out of the habit of writing it, They just changed it to Lord, which means master, something like that. And so in your Bibles, in the Old Testament, when you see capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's God's personal name, I am, being used. So the second thing I said we were going to do was try to learn about our place in God's plan. I think that's a really important thing to do when you're looking at Old Testament passages. So let's try to understand what we can learn about our place in God's story based on what we see here. God has a plan to rescue his people. He has a plan to uh, bring them out of captivity. He could do that all by himself. He doesn't need Moses, but he chooses to use Moses. We know that God uses people to carry out his plans from our sermon series in Genesis, where God promised Abraham in Genesis twelve three that all nations would be blessed through him, through his descendants. If you were here for the Fruitfulness on the Frontline series, we talked a lot about that, about God's plan for us is to go out and spread the gospel, to make disciples in our everyday life. Again, he doesn't need us. He's chosen to use us as instruments of his grace. And it's an amazing honor to be part of it. So, God has chosen Moses to carry out his plans. And what's Moses' response? Who am I? Who am I to carry out your plans? Moses felt inadequate. And this is something that will be fleshed out in chapter 4. You'll just see just how inadequate Moses felt. I don't want to steal Jonathan's sermon next week. But in chapter 4, he and God go back and forth quite a bit about solving this problem. Well, God has the perfect answer to Moses. Moses says, Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Okay, what do we say to people when they say, who am I? I'm not good enough. I can't do it. We list all the things they're good at. We try to give them a pep talk, build them up. We encourage them that they can indeed do it. You know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, oh, no, Moses, you're the perfect man for the job. You can do this, you can do this. No, he just says, Moses, I'll be with you. Because ultimately, in any endeavor that we carry out for God, that's the important part. The important part is that God will be with us this is something that I've come to understand very personally I think through this church plant you know we're a year and a few months in and back when I was on the elder board of the manual and we were thinking about planning a church it started to become somewhat clear that God and people who were hopefully listening to him were saying yeah I think you should lead the church plant team and I would think to myself who am I I'm I don't know that I'm qualified to do this you know, when Jonathan asked me to preach for the first time, and this is now only my fourth, I thought, you know, who am I? I'm not qualified to preach. What makes me qualified to bring God's word to people? Um, you know, this year when Anthony wasn't the worship leader anymore and they said, would you be the worship leader? Again, it was a hard decision to think, who, who am I to, to do that? I'm not that good. You heard my mistakes tonight. I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that I'm really awesome at. Well, I mean, I think that's part of what God wants is people to be in their weakness because then we know that when things go okay, it's, it's God's strength. Moses, I don't think, was sitting on the other side of the Red Sea thinking, look what I just did. I think he knew he didn't do that. I'm pretty sure. And I think when we enter into those things that we don't think we're qualified for, when we come out the other side, we can say, look what God did. Because we can't rightfully sit there and say, look what I did. No more than Moses could say, look at the, the sea I just parted. So, I think that's something that's very important. And I think it's, it's healthy, it's normal. I think if you find yourself thinking, I got this, that's probably a problem. You're probably doing it without God. And I'm sure all of you know this little uh, cliche saying, another thing that hung in my house growing up, not next to the painting, was a plaque that said, God doesn't care about your abilities or your inabilities, but only your availability. Now, I mean, that can be a little... You know, trite and cliche. Uh, Obviously, God has gifted us all with certain abilities and given us certain inabilities too that remind us we're not like Him. But that being said, it's our availability that God is most um, concerned about. I think this is something that Paul understood. You know, God said to Moses, I will be with you. Paul felt like he was not up to the task of the things that God called him to do sometimes. And Paul wrote these words that are on the screen behind me in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great section on the conquerors that we are in Christ. I don't have time to go into all of that, but you know it's, it's an important thing to remember. And I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'm going to read the words from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Listen to these words. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were When you were called, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I just think there's no way Moses was standing on the other side of the Red Sea, boasting in himself. They were all boasting in the Lord. As the video showed, that was a song of praise that rose up for the mighty things God has done. So, really the conclusion of that part, I want to sum it up in one thing. What we can learn about God's character and what we can learn about our part in his plan is this. God sees, hears, and cares for people and uses his followers to rescue, guide, and bless one another. So if anybody is writing anything down, that's one I I want you to take from here. I want you to know that God is paying attention. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes you wonder about people who are hitting hard times. God is paying attention. And more often than not, God wants to use his followers to rescue people, to guide people, and to bless people. He doesn't often do it himself through some supernatural event. Instead, it's his power of the Holy Spirit inside of his followers. But before we close, I think there's one more important thing whenever you look at an Old Testament text. And that is, does it tie to the New Testament? Does it tie or point forward to Jesus? And I think this text does. You see, Jesus himself used some of these words that we see here. When Jesus was talking with the, the Jewish people on the Mount of Olives in John chapter 8, they didn't really understand what he was saying. He was saying, I'm God, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one you've been waiting for. They were getting a little agitated, they didn't understand. He talked about Abraham being happy about seeing him. And they they got like, what? You're not even 50 years old, how did Abraham see you? And his response was, what I have on the screen behind me, before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, Jesus is very clearly saying that he is God himself. The Jewish people would not have missed this. Exodus 3.14 was a passage they knew well. Um, Some people say the first time God revealed his personal name, even though it's used in Genesis by some of the patriarchs, Um, wasn't God calling himself that name. And they didn't even speak the name, remember? I said that they would say Lord because they didn't even want to say Yahweh. They didn't want to say I am. So, you know, Jesus was heading down a dangerous road. Blasphemy was ultimately what the Jewish people used to convict him. And this is a pretty severe form of blasphemy for the Jewish people. Not only to use that name, but to use it about himself. Of course, in his case, he didn't have anything to worry about because it was true. But the writer of Hebrews, he also says in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Remember I said, I am, did not have any tense. It was past, it was present, it was future. Before Abraham was born, Jesus was. Jesus is, and he is to come. He uses that same personal name of God. When Jesus was leaving his disciples, there was a pretty tense time It was a verse that we learned here as one of our foundation verses. Jesus didn't, after he told his disciples to go and make disciples, I'm on the wrong slide now. He didn't give them a pep talk. He didn't say, you guys can do this. You've been with me for two years. You know what you're doing. He didn't tell them how smart they were, how good they were. None of that stuff. He's like, you got to make disciples. you got to teach them to obey everything. you got to go to the ends of the earth. I'm leaving here. But what does he leave them with? He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So again, takes a page right out of God's playbook from Exodus 3 when Moses didn't think he was good enough. And he says, I will be with you. The disciples, I'm sure, had lots of doubts about what was coming next. If they could do it, how they would get through, would they be able to make their master proud, the one that they called Lord? And he says, I will be with you. So back to this picture that hung in my living room. You know, there are countless places that we can go in life when we're with the right person that we can never get in without them. I don't know if anybody's ever had that experience of going somewhere that you yourself aren't supposed to be, but you're with the right person, and you get to a checkpoint or something, and somebody says, hey, where are you going? And the person says, oh, no, it's okay, they're with me. That's a really cool feeling. You feel really cool, and then you also feel kind of unimportant at the same time, because it wasn't you; it was it was them. You could you couldn't come back tomorrow and get in, because you're not with them anymore. Whether it's a security clearance somewhere, or into a pro sports locker room, or wherever you're trying to get, if you're with the right person, you're golden. But if you're not, you're not. Well, I think my stepfather probably got a lot of things wrong in his paintings, theologically speaking, but his intentions were good. I'm sure God was not displeased with the efforts. I don't know if this picture in the throne room is even remotely close. And I'm sure God doesn't look like a robed being with an orange head. But he did get something right. You see, when the people there are coming up to the throne, they're being led down the path in the bottom part of the picture by Jesus. And when they get to the throne, they're with Jesus. And what's going to get them past there, past that judgment seat, is not going to be their list of accomplishments. It's not going to be their abilities and how good they are at stuff. It's going to be the fact that Jesus will say, I know them, they're with me. That's the important thing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the stories we have in the Old Testament, Lord. We pray that we would not dismiss them, but look at them deeply, that we would look at them trying to figure out what we can learn about you, The God who was and is and is yet to come. Who defines reality, who defines themselves. Lord, may we look to learn more about you in those passages. May we look to see what we can learn from your story and history. And from the people that you interacted with. And how that can apply to our lives. And may we look to see how it all culminated in you coming down to rescue your people. Not rescuing them from slavery to the Egyptians, but rescuing them from slavery to sin. As Jesus said in that same passage in John 8, when they protested, we're not slaves, we don't need to be freed. He said, you are slaves to sin. And Lord, we're all slaves to sin. And without Jesus, we have no hope. Now or in eternity. Lord, I thank you that through a saving relationship with Jesus, we can one day stand before you, not confident in our own merits, not boasting about our own accomplishments, but boasting about what you accomplished on the cross, that one day Jesus will say, it's okay, he's with me. Would I pray if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't have that confidence, that they would seek that out tonight. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Savior, in whom we have that hope. Amen.